Is Georgia politics a team sport? The tantrum yesterday and all the drama is just politics. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If you're just joining us for the first time, welcome, and be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We have so much to talk about, Patricia, but first, I can't believe it. I'm sitting in this blessedly quiet house for one last day. We're taping this a little early on Thursday morning because this afternoon we're driving up to get our kids from a sleepaway camp after a month. So the mayhem will soon be back in the Bluestein household. <laughs> Craig, it does not seem like it's been a quiet month. Uh, we've Everyone's had a lot going on. Um, we have had no quiet in this house. As any listener of this podcast will hear the screaming in the background. <laughs> Most times, um, but uh, that'll be great to have him back. And then, um, you know, we can continue to tape this podcast on half mute every day as we do, because usually at what point in our homes, somebody is screaming or barking or upset about something. Oh, producer Shane not B. us. Producer Shane B. has some us. great outtakes of, of yelling at the kids. So many kids, so many dogs. <laughs> Sorry, Shane. <laughs> well, coming up on today's episode, we're going to dive deeper into the rift over green energy incentives. We're going to talk about the future for Hope Scholarship funding in Georgia, the legal hearing that could give Democrats a shot at a suburban Atlanta flip, and plus questions for the listener in the mailbag and our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Okay, let me take you in the way back machine. Ten years ago, then-Vice President Joe Biden swept into Savannah's bustling port and gave Georgia politicians seeking his support for a massive dredging project everything they had hoped. He gave unequivocal backing for a $662 million dredging of that port. To me, that represented the most recent pinnacle of bipartisan cooperation. The issue had united the Georgia political class like few others because of its sweeping economic impact. The impact it would have not just on coastal Georgia, but also metro Atlanta and, and all points between. Then Governor Nathan Deal allied himself with his political BFF, then Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed, to win over the money from the Obama administration. It's not to say things weren't partisan back then, but we're in a different era now. And what happened over this week was a stark reminder of that, as Democrats and Republicans jockeyed for credit over the latest in the blitz of green energy projects in Georgia. Here's what John Ossoff said to Patricia Murphy on the latest green energy rift. I don't see why there's political drama about this. Uh, The federal infrastructure and manufacturing policies that we passed are benefiting Georgia more than just about any state in the country. We should celebrate that together. Economic development should be a team sport. Mm -hmm. So the tantrum yesterday and all the drama is just politics. Georgia is benefiting immensely from these infrastructure and 
manufacturing policy. Uh, and I'm going to keep working with leaders at every level to maximize the benefit to the state. Tantrums and drama, Patricia. He's, of course, talking about Governor Kemp and his attacks on the green energy incentive, saying that it wasn't those billions of dollars of incentives that have been pumped into the economy, but rather it was Georgia's state-based uh, GOP policies that helped Georgia become a magnet for electric vehicle manufacturers and battery manufacturers and all these other uh, companies that are coming to the battery belt. I mean, Georgia's right, sort of the buckle of the battery belt right now. And Kemp, um, I, I think he was even more pointed in what he said about the Biden administration. He said, um, uh, this is actually from your piece, Greg, I'm going to read it loud. Uh, Kemp said Biden and his allies continue to put their thumb on the scale, favoring a few companies over the industry as a whole. When President Biden and others falsely try to take credit for Georgia's success, don't forget that next year in an election year, he said. And then he was pointing to his own staff as the unsung heroes of this um, economic development boom that Georgia really is enjoying. Um, So a couple of things. Ossoff is so precise in his language when we talk to him that when he uses a word like tantrum twice, talking about the governor, that is a very deliberate, specific message that he is sending. This is like a for for John Ossoff, who's pretty mild mannered. This is a very hard shove off the plate from him mm-hmm. um, to Governor Kemp. That that was that was not a random word that he picked. So to say that the governor is throwing a tantrum over this is something to really pay attention to. Um, we know that John Ossoff is up for election in 2026. We also know that Governor Kemp, unlike some previous governors, and I think Nathan Deal is a good example, who in their second term really knew they were not going to run for anything else and started to take some steps. For Deal, a lot of it had to do with criminal justice reform. Take some steps that were clearly, even against the mainstream or the far right of their party, um, because they weren't up for election anymore. It didn't really, they could do what they wanted. They could pursue the policies that they felt like they wanted to do, politics be damned. Governor Kemp is um, has started a federal PAC. We know that he has further ambitions, potentially, or he's at least keeping the door open, and that could include a Senate run in 2026 against John Ossoff. So that's the political dynamic at play. And so we've seen these two and their staffs kind of starting to jostle in a way that we hadn't seen before. So, But let's talk a little bit also about all of this state and federal money and incentives for these companies. The reality is that Hyundai... Uh, Rivian and that SK battery plant all were announced and decided to come to Georgia before the infrastructure bill Mm -hmm. was passed. However, they're also all going to benefit from that bill. Um, Hyundai a little bit later because they, for a few reasons, um, but uh, all of these Georgia companies have been wooed to the state by Kemp staff, by very generous economic incentives, including tax breaks. They're not going to pay the same kind of taxes as some other companies might. They're getting all sorts of really lucrative incentives from the state to come here, put up a factory, hire people, all of that economic development. At the same time, if those are green energy companies, and that's really what Kemp is focusing on, they are also about to get just loads and loads of federal incentives on the bottom of all of that, or on top of all that, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. So they're benefiting from both. Kemp in particular 
doesn't want to go there as a Republican, as a conservative. He can't say that federal incentives are a good thing for anything. You know, he can't say, oh, yes, this is why this is happening, Um, particularly because it's a Biden federal incentive. That's just a complete no go. So we see this disconnect um, in the reality that these companies are benefiting from both. But Kemp in particular does not want to say that. Yeah, it strikes me. Look, I mean, I and we've talked about this before. I totally get why Governor Kemp can't look like he is praising anything Joe Biden does, right? Especially for a, a, a nationally known politician who has national ambitions, whether it be 2024, 2026, down the road, who knows? Um, but at the same time, you know, just looking back a decade ago, it reminded me of, of look, there was plenty of partisan clashing back then too, right? That is not some uh, rose-colored glasses here where everyone got along, no, by no means. Um, but I remember the port project and I reported extensively on it as being that, you know, that thing that brought Georgians together and economic development announcements used to be like that too, right? If a major company came to Georgia, if there was a huge jobs deal, it was something that both parties celebrated. And frankly, they still are right. When Rivian came, when Hyundai came, it was something that John Ossoff, Senator Warnock, Governor Deal, they were all celebrating it. But this just seemed like a moment this past week because look, much of what the state passes in the state legislature is still bipartisan. It's still overwhelming. Most legislation is passed with overwhelming support. Uh, lawmakers and politicians, they get together on crucial issues, natural disasters, uh, emergency responses, public safety. But Georgia is also something it wasn't 10 years ago. It's a battleground state now. And so it's a lot harder for like 10 years ago, the state's leading Democrat and the state's top Republican to get on the same page like Kasim Reed and Nathan Deal did, whereas now you've got battleground politics coming to play nonstop and it's impossible to avoid. You know, and talking about the port, the great irony about that is that it was completely championed by Democrats and Republicans. Sam Nunn, who was a Democrat, and Paul Coverdell, who was a Republican, Mm -hmm. the entire delegation on the coast, all for that and all excited about it. They had to keep asking for federal funding over and over and over. And that really hasn't stopped. It's a very expensive project. That port in particular is a huge part of the reason that these companies even want to come to Georgia because they can ship their parts and their uh, completed products in and out of that port. It's just a huge, huge benefit. And if you drive down I-16, if you drive down 75, you start to see all of this. All of this development has um, so much to do with the fact, really? The fact that the port is there, but the port, I remember when it was, all of this was happening. I mean, dredging a port is just not a sexy topic. Like nobody even knows what that means or why you have to do it. Uh, it's highly localized. It seems there's like a good idea. issues, right? There's, yeah, there's all, it's the it core of engineers. That is just not, a, that's not a talker, you know, but this is Brian Kemp's signature issue. He is getting loads of national press for being a Republican governor, really pushing the green energy sector down here for the jobs message, not the um, you know climate change message. Climate, what in the, what in the heck? It's too early. Climate change message. Um, so he's getting tons of credit. It's his signature issue. Tons of people want to drive these EVs. We're all going to be driving them someday. So this is a much, much bigger issue than the port. But the port is the whole reason we can even talk about this. Well, let's talk about the flip side of that partisan coin, which is we just talked about partisan clashes and is Georgia, you know, can politics be a team sport? But something else happened this week that reminded me of how party, both parties can get together. 
And that was Hope Scholarship. You know, it, it, this might have been the biggest dividing line of the 2018 Democratic primary for governor. It was a fight over the depth of cuts to the HOPE scholarship, of course, the lottery-funded scholarship that pays for most to all of tuition for high-achieving Georgia students. Governor Kemp's latest budget basically neutralized that argument in one fell swoop, setting out a budget plan that would cover the full cost of tuition under HOPE scholarship for the first time in more than a decade. The governor told us this week he intends to make that a mainstay in his spending plans going forward. I mean, I would think that's my intention. Uh, you know, I think the legislature uh, saw the value in that, too. I mean, I know when I mentioned that out and about around the state, kind of after the session wrapped up, we were getting great feedback on that from people. And people know the Hope Scholarship. They know the lottery-funded Hope Scholarship. They know how important that is. And so, I mean, I feel really good about where we are there. It makes a big impact on Georgia families and students. Patricia, this is definitely a crowd pleaser. The reaction from Democratic Representative Stacey Evans, who made this the heart of her 2018 bid for governor, was this simple. It was just hallelujah. Absolutely. And of course, the Hope Scholarship was uh, started and was the brainchild of Democrat Zell Miller. So that gives, uh, if you're talking about just pure politics, that gives Democrats complete complete freedom to come in full bore for this. But it's about so much more than the politics. This is probably, um, it's got to be the most popular public policy change that we've seen in Georgia in the last, I don't know, 30 years. It's had such a huge effect on every Georgia college and university, especially the University of Georgia in Athens, where Kemp is from. And so As Greg, our local bulldog, knows, um, particularly as college costs continue to spiral upward, the fact that Georgia students, if you are here, if you are here and a good student and your parents are here, you are going to college essentially for free under this plan, particularly with this additional funding. Yeah, Yeah, now. um, That is such an outlier from the rest of the country, and it really does continue to make Georgia just a better place for somebody to live. And it just it affects every student at every high school everywhere in the state, and not to mention their parents. So this is such a layup to get uh, right on the politics, but it really does require that continued funding. And that has been the piece that they couldn't quite solve for. But in these days of great big budget surpluses, which has, again, a lot to do with state choices and federal choices. The state's getting absolutely bombarded with federal funding right now. It's just a good news story that everybody is happy to hop onto because the benefits to the state are are really almost impossible to measure. Let me just use point of personal privilege to say, go dogs. This is Politically <laughs> Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Greg Bluestein, along with Patricia Murphy, were two hosts of the podcast. Also, 
two of the three authors, along with our Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast, and you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts, so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, this is kind of not really under the radar, but this could be one of the biggest political stories in Georgia, depending on a judge's decision. The U.S. Supreme Court this week allowed Louisiana's congressional map to be redrawn to add another black majority district. A few weeks ago, the court found that Alabama's GOP-controlled legislature likely violated the Voting Rights Act when it drew a map with one majority black seat out of seven congressional districts. Is Georgia next for a redrawing of the maps? Patricia, that could be determined after a September 5th trial on challenges to the state's congressional map, which was redrawn in 2021 to give the Republican Party a net gain of one seat. So all eyes are on that September 5th court date. Yes, I think it's unclear right now exactly what's going to happen because the Georgia case is very similar to the Alabama case. They're certainly making the exact same arguments that black voters have been disenfranchised by the redrawing of the maps. And that took Georgia's congressional delegation from six Democrats and eight Republicans to five Democrats and nine Republicans, even in a year when the Democratic share of voters had increased after 10 years, and the state itself is getting more and more diverse in its population. And so it's the same argument. However, the congressional delegation, as it looks, is different. Georgia's congressional delegation is much more diverse than Alabama's delegation. It's unclear exactly how They want to define disenfranchisement. Do you need to uh, be able to elect a black Democrat in order to be considered representing black voters in 10 or choices? Um, All of that remains to be seen. So it's a it's a similar case, but it's not exactly the same in the dynamics in the state. And so uh, but it has given Democrats quite a bit of optimism that those maps may need to be redrawn, particularly the 6th District, which is where Lucy McBath was drawn um, out of her seat and pushed into the 7th District. She wasn't pushed into the 7th District, but it became immediately clear that she was not going to be competitive in the new 6th District in the way that it was redrawn by the Republican General Assembly. And so she chose to go over to the 7th District and challenge uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, her fellow Democrat, because it was just obvious she was, there's no way any Democrat yeah. is going to win in the new 6th. That was pretty clear. So, I think it's fair to say she was pushed into the 7th District. Yeah, I think so. So it, uh, it for sure shook up that delegation, gave Republicans more representation, even as the demographics in the state went the opposite direction. And the out will be hugely important. It is possible that there would have to be a special session of the General Assembly. They would have to redraw those maps, depending on exactly what a judge does with this. But the way that the Supreme Court decided its case means that it leaves an open door for that to be a possibility. Or if a judge does take action, could decide Judge Jones, could decide a special master um, should redraw the yeah. line. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I can already tell you, and I know, Patricia, you're hearing it too, but there are already... Democrats in that area who are buzzing about potential challenges, uh, potential bids for that new seat. We have no idea what the contours of the district will even look like, but there are a number of up-and-coming politicians who are 
closely watching this case and already making some very, very preliminary, I don't even know if moves is the right word, but at least at least making some behind-the-scenes phone calls, getting ready for for um, a potential challenge. And look, there's some Democrats who are looking at that uh, challenging Rich McCormick either way, even if that district stays the same. But certainly if, if those lines are redrawn, it's going to be an all-out battle. It would add to the fact that the, the race for the White House is really the only top-level competitive race because there's no statewide election and no other Georgia congressional seat is seen as truly competitive. So that could change the ballgame. Um, not to say there's not a lot of comp- competition down the line, too. There'll be a lot of competitive legislative races as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I will say that Republicans, when they were redrawing those maps, knew full well that there would be a legal challenge to these maps, no matter what they did. And so they told me at the time they were working assiduously to have every data point that they needed to defend it in court. It's not like they didn't think they might end up in court with this one. So they knew that they would. They knew that they needed to be able to come in with uh, data to say, no, that's completely not the way it happened. That's not at all what we were trying to do. But the reality is that the intent behind it is really irrelevant. That's the way that the uh, case was decided in the Supreme Court. And so whether they wanted to or not, were Black voters disenfranchised? And is increasing the Republican share of the congressional delegation the same thing as disenfranchising Black voters? All of those questions are going to be settled. Kind of. I guess all those questions are up in the air. <laughs> I'll put it that up way. In the air, yeah. <laughs> we don't know if ever be settled, but we will we will be watching that September 5th trial. Well, now it is time for the listener mailbag. You, dear listeners, can call the Politically Georgia podcast anytime. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. You can also email Patricia Murphy anytime. And she will also (laughs) field those questions. And remember too, Greg, that uh, listeners can call Patricia directly. uh, Just (laughs) dial 404. Actually, isn't that number 404-526-AJCP as well? The P is for Patricia. It is for Patricia. And, you know, when when the voicemail isn't working, we just forward the calls directly to Patricia, usually between the hours of 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. She's up anyway. Yeah, she got nothing else to do. Sad but true. So so let's start off with Brett in Sandy Springs. I'm calling to ask about the status of House Bill 30, which defines hate crimes and illegal discrimination, uh, which in light of the very recent and unfortunately now more frequent attacks on groups of people within Georgia from minorities to Jewish people is becoming more necessary. While strong rebukes from politicians is nice, I think the people of Georgia are waiting for much more stronger messages in the form of past legislation. A great question, Brett. This is a bill that defines anti-Semitism as a hate crime in Georgia. It's right now under the definition uh, of the Georgia hate crime statute. Anti-Semitism is not defined, and so um, those legal protections are not there for anti-Semitic attacks. This bill has been talked about ad nauseum over the last few months, particularly as anti-Semitic attacks are on the rise. Um, hate mail that was sent to State Representative Esther Panich, the lone member of the Georgia General Assembly who is Jewish, leaflets all over the state. And now this past weekend, two different neo-Nazi groups, I don't want to say rallied, they stalked synagogues, two different congregations, one in Macon, one in East, East Cobb, the Chabad of Cobb. And it has really led to an outpouring of, of frustration, anger, and community unity from folks far beyond the Jewish community. 
and it's really given more attention and more more uh, big, a bigger spotlight to the fate of this this legislation, which has passed the Georgia House, is still pending in the Georgia Senate. Never got a final vote this past session. Could come up for a vote early next year. There could be revisions in the House that could require a new vote in the House. But here's what State Representative John Carson, a Republican from Cobb County, who is one of the lead authors of that legislation. Here's what he had to say at a unity rally on Wednesday night. That thug, that bully, Joe Mendeo, to see this. Because what you tried to do was bully us, intimidate us, and split us. What you have done is unite us all together against you, and you are not welcome here, and we will win this. He went on to say that legislation would pass. He can't promise it will pass next year or even the year after that, but he said that legislation will pass. We'll see, Patricia. It's been a long fight. It's been decades long even to get hate crimes legislation back on the books in Georgia after it was struck down in a Georgia Supreme Court ruling in the early 2000s. Um, but this has seemed like it's a uh, it's one of the more talked about issues under this gold dome this past year and, and for next year as well. Yeah, it got a lot of attention in the legislature this year because that was just as we were starting to see an increase in these flyers uh, being delivered to Jewish neighborhoods in particular all over the state, not just Atlanta, but in Warner Robins and Macon and Columbus and North Georgia. So as though as media reports were surfacing of that, you felt like that uh, effort to add anti-Semitism really picked up some steam. Obviously, in the House, it got a huge vote forward um, that really kind of tapered off. But I feel like this image of swastikas being flown on flags in Cobb County at a busy intersection in Atlanta, suburban Atlanta, as well as in Macon, it is just so jarring. You cannot unsee it. And you start to ask yourself, what country is this? And what time of uh, the world is this. I We've heard so much from lawmakers, Democrats and Republicans, uh, particularly evangelical lawmakers, really deeply troubled by this. So I do feel like this is going to get an early hearing. We don't, you know, obviously we can't predict anything, but I do think it has a lot more momentum. It's different to see a, kind of a copy of a flyer on social media versus seeing a swastika in the middle of a populated, crowded area of suburban Atlanta. And it does feel like it's increasing both in um, in frequency and intensity. It's not exactly clear how that law would affect these kinds of displays. Um, there are certain First Amendment protections, but an effort, I think, is going to be made. It is uh, clearly something that's increasing in the state, and it's something that is visibly moving lawmakers. Mm-hmm. And I think we will see action on this. Um, and frankly, I think that we should see action on this. Well, one speaker after another said, which is, they try to divide us. But instead, they're uniting us. Jenny B, do we have any other questions? Yeah, let's take one more question. This is David in Athens. Do you think letting people vote in multiple primaries would help the uh, political polarization problem? A lot of times, primaries you have to run to the left or right. And if I could vote for Republicans in the um, presidential and Democrats in the Senate, Senate races, and split my ticket down the line like that, I might be able to vote for more moderate candidates. Do you think that would help some of the uh, polarization we see in politics? Now, that's a fresh idea. I think maybe that could help. You know, if you had more of an incentive for lawmakers not to run to the furthest 
edges of their parties, because we know that's who um, tends to show up in primaries. If moderates could come out and not just have to pick one ballot, but two, I think that couldn't hurt. (laughs) I'll put it that way. Um, I've actually never heard anybody suggest that. I think it's actually an idea worth contemplating. Now, practically, I don't think that's something that's going to happen. It is uh, uh, logistically, you could kind of see the challenges of letting people like choose their own adventure in every (laughs) single race up and down the ballot. Um, But then also, you just have to think about the people making these decisions and passing these laws and who has the power and who is willing to change the rules for a future election, make those rules different than the election that just got them elected. That is always the pain point in changing election laws. So unless any of these lawmakers feel like they had a close call and if only moderates had come to their rescue, (laughs) um, that would change the outcome. Um, It might have a better chance. But listen, everybody passing the laws just got elected under the current rules. So Changing them is always harder than it, yeah. uh, harder than it sounds. A novel idea, but will not happen. Uh, first, you know, obviously the presidential primary is separate from the regular primary. Um, so there will be a presidential primary next year, March 12th in Georgia, and then there'll be a, a regularly scheduled primary a few months later. Um, so I guess you're asking if you could vote Republican for a governor's race and then in a Democratic primary for a Senate race and back to Republican primary for the Secretary of State race. And... Um, <laughs> As Patricia said, the people who were just elected under these rules have no real reason or incentive to change it. Plus, what do we always hear? Party switchers and, you know, folks who are who are uh, Democrats who are voting in the Republican primary to taint the outcome of a Republican race. That would be magnified if you could literally just kind of crisscross your ballot and vote whatever race you wanted to. And I think the biggest concern would be if there is a governor's race where there's an incumbent on one end and... So there's no real op- a challenge and a wide open race on the other party. The the supporters of the incumbent could literally just vote for whoever is the worst candidate on the other ballot. They can do that already, but they have to, you know, buy into all the other races on that ballot. Under this change, they wouldn't have to pay the price of of not being able to vote for their party's candidates on the other ticket. So complicated, but uh, good question. Uh, interesting possibility. Okay, now it is time for our favorite segment of the show, Who's Up and Who's Down. Since we always like to end on a positive note, Patricia, who's your who's down for the week? My who's down for the week, Greg, are Georgia's fake electors, some of whom have already um, reached a plea deal in the state investigation Mm -hmm. going on about that entire process that's happening at uh, the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Word came this week, and we in fact saw that Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger was interviewed on Wednesday by Chris Smith, the special counsel looking at federal charges into this entire fake elector scheme all over the country. And so the fake elector situation in Georgia, which is been uh, slightly dealt with with these plea deals and with sort of separating off people who may have been sort of swept into it unknowingly versus people who were potentially planning it. All of that seemed like it was a relatively settled. And now the concept of a federal investigation coming in and potentially being interested in what happened in Georgia as well really opens up a whole new can of worms for anybody involved in that particular scheme. So they are definitely my who's down this week. My who's down 
is I, I went the easy route. My who's down is the, are neo-Nazis. Of course, this could be a weekly entry. But after neo-Nazis stalked two Georgia synagogues, waving swastikas outside the congregations, tried to intimidate the community, the community roared back. I went to Unity Rally Wednesday at the East Cobb United Methodist Church. It was packed. Standing room only, a line of cars outside the door. Insides were Jewish people, Christians, Muslims, Buddhist leaders, community advocates, bipartisan elected officials. But what really struck me was something that Rabbi Dan Dorch said. He said, this is the first time in the seven years that I've been here that the Jewish community did not have to organize its own response. Let that sink in. And this was a community-driven response to this, these vile acts of hate. And instead of separating Georgians, they united them. Patricia, who is your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week is U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock, who we have not heard a ton from this recess week. He did a virtual press conference. He'll be down in Savannah on Friday. But we he's just not in the news and in play a whole lot. Uh, and it's because he doesn't have to be. He is not up for re-election. He's not up for re-election for another five and a half years. And that is such a glorious place to be for any lawmaker who just does not have to worry about that. Warnock has been under a microscope for the last at least four years. He's been running for re-election for at least the last four years, if not longer. Um, it is it, the kind of intensity that you face in that situation with fundraising and appearances and controversies and um, you're to- not even remotely in control of your own schedule or your own life. All of that is past for the time being for Senator Warnock. And he is 100% my who's up, especially as we see John Ossoff, who's, who's not even up for election for another three and a half years, already sort of squabbling with Governor Kemp, who might be getting into it. You can just feel that situation ramping up. And we are way out from Election Day on that one. But it it just shows the real difference in lifestyles right now for Ossoff yep. and Warnock, because um, uh, that Election Day is not very close, but you can just, it's already looming. And Warnock just doesn't have to think about that for a minute. Just like we said way back when that Ossoff was who's up in 2021 because he didn't have to worry <laughs> about a 2022 election. Now it's Senator Warnock who was sitting pretty. My who's up for the week is Green Jobs. I was a moderator of a town hall on Wednesday with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, Climate Change Advisor Ali Zaidi, and Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens. It was really fascinating to hear about the tidal wave of high-tech green energy jobs and electric vehicle initiatives that are already reshaping the economy, not just in Georgia, but around the country. I know there's been this back and forth we've talked about, but who gets credit, uh, the political implications, but what is truly undeniable is that these jobs are already here and they're already reframing what we think of as the Georgia economy. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. 
and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.